Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton. I am still buried in schoolwork for one last episode, so I'm bringing you another repeat this week. So I wanted to bring back one of my favorite episodes that is sexual assault relevant. This is episode 15 about consent and rejection, with featuring an interview with Karen B.K. Chan. If you haven't already listened yet, I highly recommend it. If you've already listened, why not listen again? There's so much good info in here. And I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions related to sexual assault. It mostly focuses on how to communicate and how to deal with feelings. I'll also briefly talk about police violence. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, figuring out how to talk about consent and how to deal with rejection. These days, talk of consent and consent education is increasingly common. I would argue that it's the most important part of school-based sex education, even though it's still not explicitly included as part of some provinces' curricula. Of course, it's one thing to tell people that they need to get consent about sexual activity, but having conversations about sex is hard. Kids and adults often don't know how to have those conversations, or they're afraid that asking for consent just sets them up for rejection. Of course, this is the point of consent, opening up space for the other person to say no or yes. On this episode, I'll take a look at some of the messaging and thinking about consent over the past two decades. Then we'll dive deeper into the emotional terrain around rejection and rejection education with my special guest, Karen B.K. Chan. We'll talk big feelings, hurt, insecurity, the loneliness of masculinity, and more. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. One of the things I love about being a sex educator is that I feel like there's always more to learn. My understandings of so many issues have shifted and changed and grown over the years in response to my ongoing education. I want to start today talking about what my journey in learning about consent has looked like so far. I don't remember explicitly learning about consent during my elementary school and high school sex education. Maybe I did, but it certainly doesn't stand out to me. The Surrey School District kicked out the local Planned Parenthood affiliate from their schools because they used the word outer course on a pamphlet. So clearly I was not in a super progressive district. In fact, my crappy sex ed in high school is one of the reasons why I wanted to become a sex educator. Outside of school, I feel like most of what I learned about consent and non-consent came from TV and books. And the storylines were very simplistic. Girl says no, boy doesn't listen, girl is assaulted. And I have a vague memory of no means no as a slogan in my teens, but maybe that's because I listened to the punk band of that name. Generally, though, the no means no statement was the extent of my understanding. Since then, I've had so many exciting evolutions in my understanding of consent and sex. The first was in the early 2000s, when I was an undergraduate at Simon Fraser University. All around campus, there were no-means-no posters, but these went beyond just that phrase, having a list of other statements beneath it, including, not now means no, I have a boyfriend means no, 
Let's just go to sleep means no. I'm not sure means no. This poster, created by the Canadian Federation of Students, took the standard no means no and reflected the reality that often happens in acquaintance rape situations, where often people use words other than no or use body language to convey their no. Politeness and fear often keep people from explicitly saying no, especially to someone they know and they like. I thought this marketing campaign was brilliant. I got posters and stickers and put them everywhere. Everyone needed to hear this message. The next big evolution, also in my undergraduate years, was discovering the book Yes Means Yes, edited by Jacqueline Friedman and Jessica Valenti. I discovered the book through the Yes Means Yes campaign that was being run at the time at the University of Victoria. I read everything I could find about this exciting new concept. The subtitle of the book is Visions of Female Sexual Power in a World Without Rape. This idea became my guiding light. I was convinced that we could eradicate sexual assault, at least amongst people who knew each other, through sex education that included an understanding of yes means yes. I wrote papers about saving the world through sex education for my women's studies class and for my adolescent development class. This was clearly the answer. We needed to teach kids about yes. It was such a radical suggestion, but I still think it's such an important practical thing that we can teach kids. Unfortunately, for many parents and teachers who are uncomfortable talking to kids about sexual activity, it's a major challenge. It involves teaching people about boundaries and about saying yes to things they do want and saying no to the things they don't want. So like, yes, I want to hold your hand. No, I don't want to kiss you. Yes, you can touch me above my waist, but I want to keep my pants on. Or, yes, I really want to fuck you right now. Of course, for this to work, we need to eradicate the slut-shaming and sometimes physical violence that can happen to women and girls who are comfortable with their sexuality. Our sexual experiences do not exist in a vacuum, and for women and girls, being explicit about sexual desires can result in harm. I was wildly naive back then that this was possible. I think I have a better understanding now of how hard it is to change those societal messages around sex and sexuality, but I still want to believe it's possible to move towards this ideal. Yes means yes, and the concept of enthusiastic, ongoing consent have caught on somewhat in the mainstream. What this concept means is that both people participating in the sexual activity are doing so enthusiastically, and that consent can be withdrawn at any time. College campuses in many places have adopted this language, and there are even laws in some places like California that require affirmative consent, meaning that the person actually has to say yes to sex as opposed to not just saying no. So the absence of a no does not indicate consent. You have to actually get the yes. Since the Me Too movement went mainstream, there's been more and more nuanced discussion about what non-consent looks like. Many, many people who have been assaulted did not say no, but they certainly did not say yes, and they were not enthusiastic participants. This has led to groups of men complaining about how they feel unsafe having sex at all without a signed waiver because they feel like they're at risk of being accused of assault. To that I say, great, please do not have sex anymore. It is true that consent can be more nuanced than a simple, do you want this, and yes, I do want this. There are different ways of asking for it that could be hot. Things like, tell me what you want me to do to you, or does this feel good? Or even, like a super sexy, can I kiss you? At the beginning of an encounter, having a conversation about what you're each into can also be a way to work into consent. 
Dan Savage, the sex advice columnist and sex podcast host of Savage Lovecast, talks about how for queer people, the what are you into conversation happens all the time because there's no default sexual script like there is in heteroland. The same goes for BDSM sex. You can have really hot, exciting sex after explicitly talking about what each participant wants to happen. Outside of the hetero mainstream, there's lots of excellent models for having frank conversations about sex, and also ways to stop the sexual activity if you don't want it. So this can be done, and it's done all the time. Now, there is research showing that often consent is nonverbal, and also that people can tell when they have consent through nonverbal cues. I am of the firm belief that people can tell when the person they are with is enthusiastically consenting. If someone wants to be having sex with you, you will know it. The person is an active participant in everything that's happening and is showing that they are experiencing pleasure. If that doesn't seem to be happening, then you need to verbally check in with the person. If you are someone who isn't good at reading body language, then you definitely need to check in with the person verbally. If the person has been drinking, then you definitely need to think twice about engaging in sexual activity. A drunk person cannot consent. If you're having sex with someone and thinking, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening, I never would have thought this person would hook up with me, then you definitely need to stop and get verbal consent. All of this is to say that you can tell when someone is an enthusiastic participant in sex. If they are not enthusiastically participating, stop what you're doing and have a conversation. But of course, sex conversations can be awkward and scary. That leads me to the next big revelation in my understanding of consent, which came just a few years ago during a conversation with sex educator Karen B.K. Chan. B.K. talked about the importance of teaching beyond just consent to teach people how to deal with rejection. Today, I'm joined by B.K., who can explain more about how we can educate about consent, rejection, and all sorts of hard feelings. I'm thrilled to welcome Karen B.K. Chan to Do We Know Things. BK is an emotional intelligence, diversity, and sexuality educator based out of Toronto, and her business is called Fluid Exchange. BK is a phenomenal educator and speaker. I cannot recommend her enough. I first became aware of BK's work through her viral video, Jam, which you can find on YouTube. The video frame sex is similar to jamming in a band and covers topics like pleasure, consent, and sexual judgment in creative and nuanced ways. It was such a thoughtful and revolutionary way of framing sex. If you haven't seen it, please check it out, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Then, one of my students participated in an anti-oppression workshop that BK ran as part of the Guelph Sexuality Conference and absolutely raved about the experience. So much so that I brought BK to my university to educate professors and students about anti-oppression. It was during that visit, I think, when I first heard BK talk about the importance of rejection education alongside consent education, and my mind was blown. As a sex educator of many years myself, it had never crossed my mind that we needed education on how to deal with rejection. As soon as BK mentioned it, I was like, of course, why is no one else talking about this? As usual, BK is brilliant and thoughtful, and I'm so excited for you all to hear her today. Welcome, BK. Thanks, LD. It's so awesome to have you here, and I'm so excited for this conversation. Likewise. Before we launch into discussion, discussing rejection, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What, what is it you do? Mm, that's a great question. I am always unarticulate uh, and uneloquent um, at parties. Thank God there are no more parties. Um, <laughs> when people ask me what I do, I, I do a lot of speaking. 
Um, And like my mom said, why, why is everyone inviting you to speak? There's not that much to talk about. Um, (laughs) But so I do a lot of speaking um, to groups. I just did one to grades twos and threes. And I also work with professionals of different stripes and I do a lot of training. So I, I provide training and currently in pandemic times, uh, I not only do trainings in what I've often done, which is, you know, uh, anti-oppression or sex ed or emotional intelligence. I've also found myself uh, training people in how to uh, facilitate workshops online. Awesome. Um, so all kinds of things. Facilitation is one of my passions, too. So um, those are some of the things I do. I also do work with couples and individuals as a, as a coach and as um, a questioner and an educator, less so as a therapist. Very cool. So is it okay if I ask, how did you get into the work that you do now? What led you down this path? It was just a series of choices. So, so much for the five or 10 year plan. <laughs> uh, this was never part of the plan, but um, I remember uh, volunteering for a, an AIDS organization when I was quite young. I think I was maybe 19, 20, and I had just returned to Toronto from uh, being in school in Vancouver. And what I was looking for was queer community and where I found it, um, and queer community that was specifically East and Southeast Asian. Mm. Um, and where I found it was at an AIDS organization. And it was my first connection to a large community. And so from there, um, I started to do, you know, HIV education, but I didn't really like it. Mm. But what I liked was talking to people about why they might find it really hard to wait for an HIV test um, mm-hmm. or why a lot of people actually get tested, but don't go back for the results. And this was the days before there was rapid testing. Um, so over and over, I find myself in jobs where I would um, uh, focus on or feel compelled towards one aspect of it. And those aspects later, I realized were all kind of connected. And they had to do with sexuality and they mm-hmm. had to do with how complex it is. And as um, um, that humans uh, as animals, um, uh, our sexuality is, is where, you know, sort of the medical um, and I have a, a scientific background. I went to, uh, I did my bachelor's in molecular biology, which I don't really use anymore, but <laughs> you know, like my brain was, you know, shaped that way. Mm-hmm. So talking about sexuality actually allows me to talk about scientific things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also where the social and the emotional and, you know, um, all those things collide. And so it was just decision after decision of getting closer and closer to a thing that I could not name. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know where it will evolve from here, but um, it went from sex ed towards emotional intelligence. Um, That was also an unexpected turn about maybe 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But in the work that you do that around sexuality, you often are talking about emotional intelligence and the emotional pieces of it, uh, which is something I think is totally missing or often missing from school-based sex education that is delivered by teachers who aren't maybe prepared very well to teach sex education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, I think how I even began to um, feel like we have to dedicate some time to support teachers and other people around the emotional pieces of a sex ed class, for example, Mm -hmm. 
you know, I realized I've had two teachers faint oh, wow. uh, during sex ed classes to um, pubertal age students. So um, one, his head just fell forward and hit the table, oh my his God. desk, um, <laughs> and then another like um, fell over, but caught herself. So I think teachers are just really not um, supported very much to, to be there um, mm-hmm. as themselves in a class. I felt like if I don't do the emotional support, if, if I don't explain all the emotions that are happening as I'm trying to tell them things, mm-hmm. um, I'm not really helping my audience uh, listen. Right. Because for yeah. most of us, when we're panicked or when we're threatened or when we're feeling uncomfortable, um, most of us, our minds spin or go blank and we're hardly in the best uh, shape to be listening or absorbing or asking great questions. Absolutely. So what I wanted to talk about today was things around consent and rejection, which is something that uh, I, well, I think consent is talked out about a reasonable amount, but maybe not as in ways that is uh, understandable to the people who need to learn about it. Um, but in in the midst of all the consent education, you were the first person I heard talking about dealing with rejection. Can you talk a bit about that? Mm-hmm. I had been invited to, just as a sex educator, um, to different schools, universities, often uh, with you know young people between the ages, I'd say, of 10 and 20, to, quote, teach them about consent. And this became quite a, a hot topic, right, across campuses and, and in schools um, when more and more of the Me Too movement was taking shape and um, consent became more and more of a, a topic. And universities were wanting to make sure they didn't get into trouble that mm-hmm. they didn't want. Um, I really felt like the compulsion was more about that than like, oh, we should really listen to students who've been telling us this for years. Right. <laughs> um, although, you know, many universities are doing great work at the same time. And so I was, you know, doing the classical uh, consent talk, which is like, what is consent and telling people how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized um, sometimes it would just be in the eyes of the people in the audience. And other times it was uh, explicit questions like, how do you expect me to say that, miss? Mm. Um, or yeah, right. As if mm. like really truly seriously, <laughs> do you know anyone who talks like that? <laughs> and I'd be you know, on a stage saying, yeah, totally. <laughs> like I talk like that. And then everyone's like, okay, but who else? And I'm like, <laughs> everyone else that I know. <laughs> so it, it, it was just like these moments of um, encountering someone's disbelief. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, then I realized, right. Like there's a lot of good reason to continue doing things exactly the way folks do them. Mm-hmm. There's actually not that much motivation to do what I want them to do. Right, right. And so what are the barriers? Like if I was trying to sell them a car and the car is named consent, <laughs> what are the the things that, about the car they want? And what are the things about the car they don't want? And mm-hmm. rejection was like top of the list of like, if I put myself out there, if I talk about sex explicitly, if I... I'd, say my desires out loud. If I, um, ask for permission, then I'm mm. really setting myself up 
for all the things I managed to avoid by not doing that. Yeah. So it started there and I really felt like irresponsible to be wagging my finger and saying, this is what you should do. And at the same time, um, they are alone uh, when they have to do this tough thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not there and no one is there. Mm-hmm. And for many people, especially, um, you know, within the school of masculinity, you have to be alone in that moment. You have to be alone forever after that. It's not mm-hmm. like you can go talk to your friends after and say like, dude, uh, just like, that was so embarrassing. Right. You know? Um, yeah. And so it, it just felt like some motivation to see if how I might help people not feel so alone in the worst part of it. Mm-hmm. So how, what do you teach them? How do you frame your education around rejection and learning to deal with it? I talk about and validate that feeling of rejection. Mm-hmm. So we usually have a chance to even say like, what does it look like? And what does it feel like? So that we can have some kind of understanding that I'm not the weird sex, positive sex educator who doesn't get what it's like to be human. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I talk a bit about rejection. I've never been taught about rejection as a student myself. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so there's lots to know. Um, how does it work in a human body to feel rejected? One of the coolest things I learned was that the kind of pain that we feel emotionally actually, you know, gets processed in the brain, uh, similar to physical pain. Yeah. And so if we take, you know, painkillers, um, the brand of your choice, whatever that might be, it actually does numb emotional pain. Yeah. Um, and that's not an endorsement for taking painkillers, but that is to say uh, emotional pain sometimes gets um, just sort of brushed off mm-hmm. versus physical pain is more understood as real, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so it was nice to be able to say, actually, your pain is real. And I don't know mm-hmm. if... Um, anyone else in your life permit you to know that um, if you permit yourself to know that, but it's real scientifically speaking. And so as, just as you wouldn't ignore like a broken ankle and say, you know, I'm just going to walk it off. Uh, you don't have to ignore emotional pain. And in fact, it needs attention. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. Um, another part is talking about insecurity and understanding sort of the architecture of insecurity And I remember being uh, in grade school and there was a teacher who came in to break up um, a fight and someone had lashed out at someone else. And it was out of insecurity, but to my, you know, grade school self, I didn't know that. I just thought Mm -hmm. that person was powerful and mean, Mm -hmm. the person who Mm -hmm. lashed out. And then the teacher was like, you know, you only did that because like everything you dish out is like how you're feeling insecure. Yeah, And she was reprimanding the lasher out and it just didn't make sense to me. Hmm. And it was much, much later in life that I was right. like, right, I do that too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> and so it, I think it helps to just name it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like and when people feel insecure, they either sometimes get much, much bigger because they feel so small. Mm-hmm. Or they fold themselves in even smaller to prevent um, somebody else taking them down. Mm-hmm. And so uh, those are some of the the key messages. It's almost just like I think of it as um, being a tour guide to help someone 
into the forest of their rejection experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Many people don't know that the very culturally accepted disguise for rejection, which is anger, Mm -hmm. that that itself is not feeling rejected. It's how we prevent ourselves from feeling rejected. Right. Instead of feeling the feeling, we create a new, more aggressive feeling. Yeah. (laughs) Cover it up. And be preoccupied. Mm -hmm. Very true. So how do kids and adults and teens take this? Does it work? What kind of feedback do you get? I've gotten really um, like connective feedback that mm-hmm. folks have, from my point of view anyway, I really appreciate even a chance to talk about this thing. Like rejection is something I haven't yet met someone who say, I don't relate. I don't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. Right, right. And um, like alongside something like jealousy, it's a topic that people have opinions about, have experiences with. And so, so far, people have really appreciated mm-hmm. the chance to just talk about it. You know, even if it might be to say, no, I, I disagree. I don't think we should feel it. I think we should do everything to suppress it. And then uh, feeling good is much better than feeling bad. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. And I've had some really powerful feedback, especially from young men saying, um, I really could have used more of this when I was younger because that loneliness you talk about, like, that's my life. Yeah, yeah. Masculinity is often a prison. Mm-hmm. So would do you suggest these techniques around rejection for being comfortable with other more uncomfortable emotions or mo- emotions we tend to try to avoid like yeah. when you're doing emotional education generally. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I do think that that is one of the the steps towards so-called freedom or liberation or just mm-hmm. feeling more at peace. Yeah. And, you know, and I teach this because I am trying to learn it, <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, mm-hmm. myself. And so, I do find that to be the way forward is to try Mm -hmm. to feel the things that I am trying to run away from or the imagery I have in my head is like, I'm keeping a hand on this door and I'm trying to not let it open. (laughs) Right. And so it's taking a hand and then there's another thing that I have to put my hand on. That's another door. And then finally I've run out of hands and I've got to put my foot on another door, that trap door that's trying to pop open, which is like, trying to let me feel like vulnerable and I'm like no (laughs) and then eventually I'm like trapped I'm actually stapled to these doors because I'm trying to keep them from opening and so yeah I'd like for myself also to feel a little bit more freedom a little bit more peace Mm -hmm. and then I mean the work with rejection also then goes beyond that like we feel it we name Mm -hmm. it right don't call it something else that's another Mm -hmm. sort of piece of work I ask people to do like if you're a good friend and your friend has been rejected, don't call it, that's a stupid school anyway, and nobody wants to get into that. That's why this is actually a good thing that they rejected your application. Mm-hmm. Just just tell the truth and say, you really wanted to go into that school and they didn't take you and it sucks, man, and I love you. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's sort of the truth of the matter. Um, yeah. Alongside that kind of strategy, um, I ask people to also make an exit plan, right? So when you get rejected, what are some of the things you want to do? 
Because in that moment of rejection, most of us cannot make decisions with our full faculties that are actually aligned with our values of who we are and who we want to be. Mm. Um, and so having a plan actually makes a difference, right? If you know when you get rejected, you're going to like walk backwards 10 steps. You're going to like say, okay, thanks. Have a good night. Or like you're going to say, ouch, or you're going to call a friend or you're going to, I don't know, run around and find a track and do, you know, 2000 kilometers. No, that's too many. (laughs) 2000 meters. Yeah. Two kilometers um, around the track. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Whatever it might be, have a, have some kind of plan. You know, That's so those are brilliant. some resilience skills, right? Plan for it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Like the, cause I, I do envision the, you know, sometimes violence or extreme emotional reactions that can come when people are rejected. And I love this idea of already having a plan and being able to default as best you can in that moment to yeah. this pre-planned strategy. Yeah. And as we, are rejected more and more. And as we respond more and more in in a way that's more and more aligned with our own values, then we're more set up for keeping on that kind of response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're basically training yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And when you go into that like intense emotional reaction mode or that fight or flight, you can potentially override it (laughs) and go to the plan. Yeah. Or like, I don't want to do that, but I know that's the plan. What do you think the broad societal benefits are of people learning to better deal with rejection? I think we move towards, I mean, this might sound very um, like tender and lovey-dovey because it is. Um, I think we move towards a a kinder, more loving society because Mm there is more compassion towards the self, firstly, Mm -hmm. in order to even feel rejection. I have to be somewhat kind to myself to let myself feel something. Right. So there's that piece. And then the next piece is if I'm able to connect with a friend or a loved one because of their rejection versus I'm going to distract them or I'm going to bad mouth whatever they've been rejected by. Mm-hmm. Um, I connect with, so like rejection becomes a place also of connection. Mm-hmm, perhaps definitely. not with you know the person who rejected you but perhaps right. or perhaps with that person too and then finally i think the fewer emotional taboos we might have the more like at ease uh human beings we can be mm-hmm. so i th- actually think you know realistically people will just feel better yeah by feeling shitty mm-hmm. in the moment of shittiness mm-hmm. and shittiness is gonna happen yeah, because the alternate, the alternative of uh, stifling emotions, of holding back, of containing it, of keeping it together, of putting on a strong front or a happy face, of becoming resentful, of becoming like lonely, of becoming all those things, right? Like they're not actually fun. They're not actually they don't actually lead to a good life. Exactly. Coupled with rejection, resilience is something that I see as the flip side. Flip side, it's related and it doesn't have to be opposite. Is like uh, resilience around guilt mm. and the feeling 
uh, of guilt of setting boundaries, right? Which is also a really important part of consent culture. And the school of masculinity tends to teach the suppression of rejection and hurt and smallness. Mm -hmm. And the school of femininity tends to teach guilt. And guilt is like a great motivator to do things that are pleasant and make sure that people are liking you and Mm -hmm. they're happy and they're well and Mm -hmm. um, compromise self before you might compromise somebody else. And so guilt resilience is really important too, because so many people I talk to are saying, yes, I get consent culture and I know how you do it, but I can't because I would just feel bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I I couldn't set that kind of limit because this person that I care about would sulk or would cry or would, you know, be hurt or be injured. Their ego would be shattered, so forth. Right. And then we're just taking on all this responsibility for other people's feelings. Yeah. And in many ways, that's um, the flip side, because that's almost like feeling for and feeling too much and taking on feelings that are not ours Mm -hmm. as if they're ours. Yeah. And so becoming more resilient when guilt comes up is what I try to invite people to do. You don't become resilient towards your guilt um, by waiting until you're not guilty to set boundaries. Right. You have to set like small boundaries, have the guilt come up, withstand it, have it eat you from the inside, but like just try to just hold (laughs) on and then continue that. And it will develop as a practice of becoming more and more resilient. Um, And the guilt response will be less and less um, like trigger happy, let's say. Mm -hmm. So that's that's sort of the couple, the counterpart to Mm -hmm. it. I love this. I hadn't even thought of that. This is another thing you're blowing my mind. (laughs) Like first rejection, but now also teaching people (laughs) who are setting the boundaries to feel or develop more resiliency around guilt. This is brilliant. I love it. Thank you, VK, so much for joining me today on Do We Know Things. Can you let people know where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, um, they can find me at fluidexchange.org, O-R-G. Um, and I list um, how to get a hold of me there. And I also put up whatever I can of like tools and skills um, and uh, stuff people can use. Um, and there's a bunch of videos and uh, articles and stuff like that there. In the past decades, sex educators have taught people to make their sex lives safer, consensual, and fun. But navigating the complex human feelings of rejection, hurt, and guilt that sometimes come along with issues about love and sex is another dimension. And it requires more research and more education on the subject. This is why it's great to have educators like BK around. I also think that talking about feelings is a way to shift sex education in schools in ways that are less controversial. Of course, I still think there needs to be basic info about sex— But if the curriculum was more about emotional education and the complexities of relationships, I think students would actually get so much more out of it. These days, I'm not as hopeful about eradicating sexual assault as I was in my 20s. In fact, a lot of the time I feel pretty hopeless. Talking with BK, though, gives me some hope. If we can help people have better conversations about sex and better understandings of their own emotions, we can create more safety for everyone. On the next episode, I'll be talking more about safety and relationships when I examine restorative justice and how it can be integrated into strategies for dealing with and preventing sexual assault. This will be the third part in this three-part series on sexual assault. 
That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. Thank you to Julia Kaufman for transcribing the interview with BK. I am Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. Do We Know Things.